you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be reading through the first eight verses of Mark's gospel. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord's coming and clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist and he was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all of the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear him. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honeys for food. John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I am not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Mark starts his gospel out in a way that is perhaps different than the rest of the gospels in that Mark understood the people receiving his gospel would not care about a bunch of the details uh, that the other gospel writers had once um, included in their things. When Matthew began his gospel, he began with the genealogy of Jesus because to him it was important that people understood that Jesus followed the line that Scripture said that he was supposed to follow and so that those people who would receive it would understand the importance of this person. But Mark was writing to a Roman group of believers, and for them, Jewish people really didn't have a lineage, so it really didn't matter about Jesus' lineage. And his purpose was to get them to understand the work that Jesus was about to do in their midst. And so he quotes from Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 40, where he talks about the servanthood and the person of the Jesus, the, the person of the Messiah, I'm sorry, Jesus Christ bringing the salvation that comes from God alone. But he also quotes from Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 about the judgment that this Messiah would bring. So the reality of it is, is that Mark wanted to focus more on the salvation that was being brought to the people instead of the judgment. So he uses a very little bit of Malachi, but he uses a lot of Isaiah. But he talks about this thing of Clear the way of the Lord, prepare the way, make, make straight its path. And what he was doing there is he was declaring something that would happen usually before a royal procession would come to an area that they would send a messenger. If you've ever seen the movie 300, you know the messengers that show up uh, before, um, oh my goodness, I just went blank. Who's the evil king dude? Xerxes, yeah, I couldn't say that anyways. Uh, before he showed up, they sent the messengers before, you know, and it's the famous line, this is Sparta and all that good stuff. So, so that's what Mark was alluding to is that there would be this messenger who would come before the Messiah who would say, prepare the way and make his path straight. You see, that messenger, not only did they announce that the messenger was coming, but they would actually fix the roads along the way. They would smooth out the ruts. They would replace things that needed to be replaced. If there's a bridge, it wasn't quite well. They'd go ahead and have some people rebuild a bridge so that this royal person, as they came through, would have a smoother ride and a little bit better trip than, than, um, than normal people would. So John the Baptist came as this person who would prepare the way for this coming Messiah, to tell them of the one that was coming to them. But he did something else along the way. Not only did he announce that this Messiah was coming, 
But in a way, he began to prepare the people. He began to smooth the road for people to hear the message that, that um, Jesus was bringing. So at this point in Israel's history, a lot of them had really turned away uh, from the teachings of God. And a lot of them had become cultural in a way. Uh, what they did as Jewish believers was not so much because they believed it, but it's because they had been raised that way. It's because they had been told, hey, this is what Jewish people do. And a lot of them did not understand the significance in it. So you can imagine the way that the world influenced them and the way that the world probably changed a lot of the things that they knew they were supposed to do as obedient Jewish believers. So John came and the message that he brought reminded them of their disobedience. It reminded them of the way that they had turned away from the teachings that God had given their people, that it had lost its significance for them and the importance for their life. So he comes and he meets them somewhere that you wouldn't think that good, upstanding Jewish people would be. He met them in the wilderness. It says that people from all over the region came to the wilderness and they met John at the Jordan River. And it had been 300 years since John had spoke, since God had spoken to his people, and then here comes this guy from the wilderness area, who's dressed in a camel's uh, camel's fur and had a leather belt around his his waist. So you can imagine he was a pretty rough looking character. But but this shows one of the things that God does in the life of his people. That's really clever on God's part. You see, there was another person who looked a lot like John the Baptist did in Israel's history. That was that prophet Elijah who came and who reminded Israel of the way that they were allowing the world to influence who they had become. If you remember the prophet Elijah, we talked about him a few months ago. He met with the prophets of Baal. He stood against King Ahab, all that good stuff. So when people saw John the Baptist and they heard the message that he was preaching this was something that they recognized. This was something that they remembered hearing stories about when they were growing up. This is something that they remembered hearing their ancestors speak about. And so they wanted to hear what he said. But as they got there, they began to realize that the message that John the Baptist was bringing was something that was centered on them. That was something that was not focused so much on the world and how the world was treating them, but instead it was focused on who they were and who they had become within themselves. And it says that as many as 300,000 people came to John at the Jordan River to be baptized. So here comes Israel coming to see this person who brought this message of a Messiah and he would say the words that I might baptize you with water as a symbol of your repentance, as a symbol of understanding that you have turned away and you desire to come back. But understand, I am only clearing the way. I'm only preparing your hearts for someone who is to come after me. The one that is coming after me is so great that I'm not even able to untie his sandals. And if you remember, the job of untying sandals and cleaning the feet was the job of the lowest slave in the household. It was something that you very quickly wanted to work yourself out of that position, and here's why. Back in the day, before cars and street departments and, and paved roads and all those things, people rode animals. And animals eat. And animals exhaust. And other things like that. And people would throw things out into the road because it was the easiest, clearest place. And sewers then were open ditches on the side of the road, sometimes down the middle of the road. And to get from one side to the other, you had to step either across or through. 
And so you can imagine as people that only wore sandals, their feet were probably a little nasty. And John said, this person that is coming is so great that I can't even fathom being able and being worthy to untie his sandals. He said, but he's going he's gonna to do something else. He's going he's gonna to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, that's something that Israel had heard about for a while. That's something that people that were familiar with God had thought about at once in their life, I'm sure, is something that they had heard stories about, about the Spirit of God dwelling among His people. So they wanted to see and know about this Messiah. They wanted to hear these words that John spoke. John said that this Holy Spirit would bring about a change, not on the outside, but a change on the inside. And the way that God's people had turned away and had become cultural in their beliefs and cultural in their importance and understanding of who God was would experience this change within them where their desires would be that they would no longer want to do the things against what God had said, but yet they would want to know God more. That this Holy Spirit would come and would no longer divide. It would no longer allow sin to hold sway over a person but instead it would allow them to know a fellowship with God. So Jesus comes and he brings this message about this inward change. And throughout his time on earth, he talks about how this inward change that is brought about as the result of the giving of the Holy Spirit, there's going to be an outward significant change that would take place in the life of the believer. So as we're, experience Advent, as we're experiencing Advent this season, and as we're talking about the four things of faith, hope, love, and joy, last week we talked about peace, and about how we almost experienced the peace that Jesus intended for us to experience. If you remember in his sermon, Almost Christian, John Wesley said that the one thing that keeps somebody from being an, almost, or being an altogether Christian and keeps them in that almost Christian thing is the power that comes through the presence of Jesus Christ in their lives. And we talked about how that peace that we almost experience means that we talk about it, means that we, we understand it and we want it to be good, but yet we still allow the world to have so much influence over us that we never fully understand that the peace that Jesus brings is not something that is based on our circumstances or our situation or even our victory over things, but it is based solely on the goodness of God and the fact that God fulfills all the promises that he says. So this week we talk about hope. What does it mean to have an almost hope versus an altogether hope? You remember what hope is, don't you? It's knowing that tomorrow is going to be a better day. It's knowing that no matter what we experience now, it's going to get better. We look at our hope in terms of eternity, knowing that no matter what we experience on this earth, whether it's sickness, whether it's death, whether it's war, whatever, we know that Jesus Christ has given his life so that we can experience an eternity with God in the presence of Jesus, where sin is no more, where sadness is no more, where war and envy and strife are no more. And if you think about it in terms of eternity, 80 years is not that bad, is it? But we experience an almost hope because we can't fathom what eternity looks like. 
And so as we live here on this earth and as we, we try to be Christians and we try to have hope in the midst of our situation and in the midst of what we see when we turn on the news and when we hear reports from our neighbors of everything bad that is happening in the world, it's easy to be discouraged, isn't it? Well, John Wesley said that there's one perfect way that we can experience the fullness of hope. And it's not by the way that you would think. It's not by securing the things that we want. It's not by establishing for ourselves systems and things that can't be overcome by the things of the world because none of us have that ability, do we? I imagine the richest person in the world probably at some point feels hopeless, probably feels despair, probably feels like they're powerless to do anything. But John Wesley would say this. He would say that he did not believe nor expect that the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ, would ever be such a place where people who needed to hear the message of Jesus Christ would come to. Did you hear what I said? Did that make sense to you? He would never expect that the church of Jesus Christ would be a place where people hearing the message of Jesus Christ would come to. But instead, he believed that the true church of Jesus Christ was meant to be people who were changed from within by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, they took the message of Jesus Christ to those in need. You see, that was John Wesley's understanding of what it took to experience an altogether hope. It is to not sit back and hope that God would change our situation. It is to not sit back and hope that things for us would improve and get better. But to understand that the, the, the change that Jesus Christ had brought was something that was done within us. And when we took that change that had been done within us and we went out to those around us, then we could experience hope. And you ask, how does that make sense? It makes no sense at all. You see, John Wesley was very, very confident and very sure that the church could not be a place that sat stagnant, that sat stationary where people would just flock to and hear the message of Jesus. He didn't believe that the power of church marketing laid in the sign out front or in the landscaping or in the beautiful stained glass windows. All those are great and wonderful. But he knew that the power of the church, he knew that the power of the Holy Spirit came alive when the people of God took the message of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. You see, evidence of an altogether hope in our lives is when we realize that the hope of Jesus Christ is something that is to come alive in our lives every day. That each day when we wake up, we are astounded, we are amazed, and we are excited because we know that Jesus Christ already has the victory. Remember last week we talked about John 16, 33. Jesus said, I've told you all these things that you might have peace. In this world, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. Be encouraged, for I have overcome the world. And so we wake up the first every single morning remembering that Jesus Christ conquered yesterday. Jesus Christ has conquered today, and Jesus Christ has conquered tomorrow. And that is where our hope is, is that tomorrow has already been won. But the reality of it is, is that there are so many people walking this earth that don't understand that. There are so many people on this earth that don't understand what hope is. And I'll tell you, we talk about not being able to understand what eternity is. I can't understand or fathom a life 
not knowing what hope is. Even on my worst day, I know that tomorrow is a new day. Even on my worst day, I know that eternity is coming. That's a hard thing to lean on it sometimes, I'll give you that. But I know it's coming. But could you imagine waking up each and every day not having hope? Not knowing that you're going to eat, just hoping that you don't die. Not knowing if you're going to have someplace warm to sleep, just hoping it doesn't rain and freeze. And there are people that live like that each and every day. And so John Wesley would say that the secret to hope would be to realize that the Christian believer would not reserve their hope in the message of Jesus Christ only for Sunday mornings, only for something to be talked about when they're wearing their Sunday best, but they would wake up each and every day with that being the banner by which they set out to live their life. And that Jesus Christ would not be Sunday school talk as they drink coffee and as they hang out, but yet it would be the thing that gives them a smile when they introduce themselves to a stranger. It would be the thing that allows them to step aside so that somebody else might be better off. You see, God did not come to the world in the way that the world would expect. The money says that hope comes through power, comes through money, it comes through all these influences that say what I want is going to happen. But Jesus didn't come that way. He came in a way that the world would probably not even realize. He came in a way that said, I'm going to do this so that, you might so that you might have this. And that's the story of the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus came and did something he didn't have to do so that we could experience salvation. Jesus lived his life as a servant, something that the Son of God definitely did not have to do, but he chose to so that we could experience God's goodness. He hung on a cross, even though he didn't have to, so that you and I would not have to pay the penalty for our sins. He took our place of judgment so that you and I would be seen according to his sacrifice. And not what our sin would cost us ourselves. You see, that is the evidence of an altogether hope. It was something that wasn't reserved to the inner circles of the highest members of the church or the Jewish council. It was not something that was delivered only to royalty. To where the people on the outskirts and the have-nots would not experience. But yet it started at the bottom. In the simplest and smallest and easy way, a baby born in a manger. On a silent night, the voice of God cried out that he was now among creation. And John the Baptist would claim, prepare the way, make straight his path, for the Lord is coming. You see, that is the responsibility that we have as believers is to understand that the hope of Jesus doesn't exist in places where we most often look for it but the hope of Jesus lies in the fact that when you and I understand what Jesus did for us that Christmas morning 
when the Son of God came to earth. That when you and I understand what Jesus Christ did for us on that Friday when He hung on the cross, that when you and I understand what Jesus Christ did for us on that Sunday when He rose again from the grave, that's where hope lies. That's where your hope lies, is in knowing that Jesus did something you couldn't do and that eternity was going to be taken care of. And that happened because Jesus came. Because Jesus brought the message of hope. But you see, it's when we least require hope that we least think about hope. When everything's going good, when life is comfortable, everything's going our way, we don't have much need of hope, do we? We need coffee. We need dinner. We need sleep. But it seems that when we have nothing at all, when coffee doesn't work, when sleep won't come, when we don't feel like eating, the only thing that gets us through is hope. So an altogether is hope is something that understanding that the work of Jesus Christ is probably least accomplished when we wear our Sunday best. That the hope and the message that Jesus came to bring to the world is probably least talked about and least fulfilled when we are gathered in these places. We can rejoice, we can give God glory, and we can give God thanks that we are here and we can worship Him. But the hope of Jesus Christ happens. The fullness of hope when you experience the love and all the things that Jesus wants you to experience happens when you take what you know about Jesus and you carry it to somebody who does not have hope. You see, that is the message and the mission of the church. That is the whole point of why we celebrate Advent is to celebrate and remember that God came to dwell among us. That Jesus Christ came so that the people who were not on the inside could hear the message. That Jesus came so that the outcasts of society would be brought into the kingdom of their creator. So this Advent season, as we think about preparing our hearts for Jesus, as we think about those words, thy kingdom come and thy will be done, we realize that God has put us to work. That God has called us to pick up the tools of the trade, our gifts, our talents, even our weaknesses. And to go to places where we would not expect the work of God to be done. Whoever would think that the Son of God, the Messiah, would come in the form of a baby born in a manger? In the same way that God felt our pain and sent His Son, it's only when we realize the pain of those around us that we can understand what an altogether hope is. When we can see in somebody's eyes that their life has been changed. And that even just for a moment, they're not worried about their situation. They're not worried about their next meal because they're eating. And they're not worried about tomorrow night because they're thankful that God has taken care of tonight. And altogether, hope is a tangible real evidence of something that happens when you and I who profess Jesus Christ as our Savior are truly convinced of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. 
You see, if Jesus had never shown up, you and I would be experiencing an almost hope. We would hear the words of God that things are going to get better, that you're going to be delivered. We would hear those things, but we would have no evidence of it. But with Jesus Christ, we have evidence that God's word is faithful that God's word is true. We have evidence that not even science and history can object to, that the things that were said thousands of years before Jesus came true on that Christmas morning. And that's how the world experiences hope. That when we as Christians don't just say that God is good or that God is a provider, that God does good things or that God is faithful, but when you and I put flesh to those words and we put actions to those statements then we show that the things that God has said are true that God changes the world yes through people like you and I realizing that God has given us that ability that responsibility that privilege so my challenge for you is this as you think about hope this Advent season as you think about what it means to experience an almost hope just in talking about the words and tying it to the Christmas season my challenge is that you would realize that the hope that Jesus Christ calls us to is a hope that is moving it's not one that actively thinks only for itself and for its own betterment but realizing that through the work of Jesus Christ God came to the world and it's through the work of you, and it's through the work of me, and for all who profess Jesus Christ as their Savior, to go out and to make life better for somebody else. And it may be as simple as saying, hi, how are you doing? And it may be something extreme. God works through a wonderful, amazing ways when His people are willing and ready to listen. So as our hope was given through Jesus Christ, we give hope to others by living in response to our salvation. By living and realizing that Jesus Christ has come for a reason. And that this Advent season we must prepare our hearts to experience Him. Would you join me as we pray? Father God, I thank You for Your Word. God, I thank you for your messenger, John the Baptist, who came and who prepared the way in our hearts. God, that as we had heard that we had rebelled and had turned away, that we had become slaves to sin and to our own arrogance, that you sent a messenger in the most unlikely way. So that the message would be not lost to the upper echelons, but so that the outcast and the needy and the lowly and the hopeless would be able to find hope, would be able to hear the message of salvation and deliverance and rejoice that the time had come when you had returned to your people. God, this Advent season, let us not merely hold hope in our heads as a buzzword that obedient Christians think of during this season, but yet may we think of it as the thing that changed our lives. That salvation came through your son Jesus Christ. And God that you have given us the privilege to carry that message to the world. God help us understand that we might be the light of hope. To somebody desperately needing to hear it this season. 
We pray all these things in your precious and holy and wonderful Son's name. Amen.